Hello there. This is Rosemary Adam. I am a nurse and a paramedic, and I work at the EMS Learning Resources Center at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City, Iowa. We are part of the Emergency Medicine Program with the University of Iowa and the College of Medicine. I also am, have been an ACLS basic life support and PALS instructor for a number of years. I won't tell you how many. It'll give it all away. Uh, but I'm also serving on some national committees and have been watching the science uh, updates and the worksheet reviews for these science updates for the past two years and have been pretty involved in the administration of the program for rolling this new science out to our instructors. So it is with honor, I guess, that I get to review some of the science updates um, for 2006 that are actually published in the 2005 guidelines at the AmericanHeart.org website, and you can download them anytime you want to. I'm going to um, talk mostly, of course, about um, ACLS for the adult, uh, because that's where all the science is at. Uh, I always tell people it's good news, bad news. There are not enough pediatric codes, thank goodness. But then on the other hand, there are not enough pediatric codes to study. So a lot of the science that the PALS folks depend upon are based on the uh, adult resuscitation science. But a lot of these new changes, and I'll be telling you more about this later, will be surrounding the waltz as I call it, or the dance around basic life support and the need to provide great compressions in the new science. So we'll focus on basic life support, advanced cardiac life support for the adult. And then, of course, we'll talk a lot about PALS and the science changes, but a lot of those changes are going to be talked about within ACLS and BLS. So we're going to be looking at this slide-wise and um, with my narration through the primary survey of resuscitation, A, B, C, and D, airway, breathing, circulation, and defibrillation. And then we'll move on to the advanced A, B, C, D, that secondary that is taught in our ALS courses of upgrading airway, ventilation with oxygen, uh, enhancing circulation with advanced procedures, and differential diagnosis. Along with that, We'll be, I'll be in, injecting some uh, pediatric considerations throughout, but in general I'll have a section also on NRP and pediatrics. Again, you can take the time if you want to, put a lot of paper in your printer to download the uh, entire guidelines document and you can access that at the www.americanheart.org website. If you want a summary of those changes, that was published in Circulation, which is also available on that site. That's a pretty big site. If you go to the left-hand side of that title page, you'll see that there is a section for professional scientific uh, for emergency cardiovascular care, and then you can gain access to those publications. So let's shake and shout. First, the first big change was for fast compressions, 100 per minute. Now, I think that also came out in the 2000 guidelines, but I don't think you've realized the import of this. It is a 30 to 2 compression ventilation ratio. 
it, which is extremely important, and to do 30 compressions in 23 seconds or less. That is extremely fast. That way, 100 compressions can get in in one, in one minute versus the general recommendation that at 15 to 2, 100 events should occur per minute. We want all 100 compressions in one minute. 30 to 2 with all 30 compressions occurring in 23 seconds or less. Now, also understand that it is critically important that there be complete recoil. So over the years, you've been taught CPR, and we made a big deal about keeping your hand in position on the lower one-third of the sternum so that you didn't lose your spot, so to speak, and jump all over the chest and possibly fracture ribs. But some of the huge studies out there that are very, very convincing tell us that you almost have to dehease your hand from the chest wall so that the sternum comes completely up so that that heart fills nicely. And those complete recoil um, investigations were very, very convincing that this was a big deal. So we're going to do hard compressions, fast compressions, but we also have to have complete recoil. And one of the scientists said that possibly a way to tell you that you're doing complete recoil is to have the ability to just slide a piece of paper in and out from between your hand and the chest wall as you're coming up off the chest. It must be a 30 to 2 ratio, and this is universal. At one point in time, the science committee was looking at 100 to 2, 50 to 2, no ventilation CPR. We do know that ventilations are not as important in early cardiac arrest. We also know that eventually ventilations are important. We also know that we need to go fast, hard with complete recoil, and that in behavioral studies, lots of med students um, dropping to their knees in a study group showed that they can only go so long at this rate before tiring. And when the provider tires doing, during compressions, complete recoil is lost. So the tipping point for a 30 to 2 ratio was a combination of all those factors. We needed to go hard, fast with a complete recoil. We're going to do these in two-minute segments because of being tired. But um, we came up with 30 to 2 so that it would be universal across the child age groups, the adult age groups, and it will allow the compressor to have a little bit of rest when they came up to do the two ventilations, no matter how they did that. So there was lots of science that went into just this part, but there's absolutely no proof that 30 to 2 is the right thing to do. That had to do with consensus and a tipping point. This is where it is also extremely important that we take into account how tired that compressor is going to get at this rate. So the team leader, whether it be a basic life support code or an advanced life support code, whether it be a child or an adult, the team of compressors need to take turns and switch with simplicity every two minutes. Now, again, 30 to 2 ratio in two-minute segments, and every time somebody's checking rhythm and pulse, then a new compressor needs to take control within five seconds over the old one. 
so that you have a fresh person doing compressions so that complete recoil is continued. So your code teams are going to look a little bit different. You work in the EMS setting, it's a little bit difficult trying to get all these people to do compressions. But many times you have some first responders there. Give them or authorize them to do switching every two minutes to maintain this. But this is a team event. Ventilation and compressions are team events. Everybody's watching that this is done well. We in healthcare are absolutely infamous for huge, long interruptions in our compressions. They liken this to thinking about a semi, a loaded semi. And you've seen them on the roads. If uh, they're chugging up the hill trying to get that uh, freight across country, they're expending a lot of energy trying to get up the hill. Every time you pause your compressions, the truck stops right on the grade of the hill and then it takes forever for it to build up the momentum again to get the freight across where it needs to go. And that's the analogy that they use um, in trying to tell us in simplistic terms about stopping compressions. You are trying to create cardiac output and perfusion to the heart itself. Every time you stop in, uh, compressions, it takes several several compressions for cardiac output to regain where you left it off. So huge considerations here on minimizing compressions for 10 seconds or less at any one time, only to stop compressions for defibrillation, rhythm, pulse check, or if you're using an AED for analysis by the AED. And those are the only times they want you to stop. This has been a big deal for a long time. We've been trying to tell folks to quit hyperventilating the patient. Easier said, absolutely, than done. Behaviorally, we can't help ourselves. If you watch your coworkers giving ventilations, you'll notice that they get distracted and automatically they pick up the rate of ventilation. Even very experienced anesthesiologists will do the same. So, this is a team event. Everybody's watching for fresh compressors at the right rate, depth, and with complete recoil, and they're watching for ventilation rates. Extremely important. And I highly um, encourage you to read Ofter Heidi's study on this, which is also uh, referenced in the guidelines. One rescuer adult CPR then is, Annie, Annie, are you okay? That tap and shout, hey buddy, are you doing okay? If you're by yourself, of course, you're now going to activate an EMS system because most sudden cardiac arrest, as we know, is cardiac related in the adult. If you're in an in-house system, you're going to yell out the door or have them call a code team or call whatever number is available to, to initiate that response team within your system. Open the airway, uh, head tilt chin lift is still advised. Assess for breathing for no more than 10 seconds, and that would be assessing for normal breathing. If any abnormal breathing, you know that they need to be assisted anyway. Two slow ventilations. Now, it's important to note that this is one second of ventilation each, and that is a significant recommended recommendation change. This is part of that hyperventilation thing. There are two ways to hyperventilate people. One is to give the breath too fast, which insufflates the esophagus and leads to gastric aspiration. 
and the second is to give too many ventilations per minute, which decreases preload tremendously. So two slow ventilations, one second each in the sequence. Then check a pulse for no more than 10 seconds. Uh, the signs of circulation that was taught in the 2000 guidelines has been de-emphasized. They want healthcare providers to just check a pulse. By the way, in the Heart Saver courses for our bystanders out there, for the non-healthcare public, we are not going to be teaching pulse checks. What we'll be teaching is that anybody who's unconscious and not breathing probably does not have a pulse. 30 compressions in less than 23 seconds, as I said, and then back to two slow ventilations. Uh, in 2000, they actually coined the phrase, give your ventilations slow and low, and I still think that applies today. They want those ventilations over each over one second to just allow for chest rise, visible chest rise. They are not giving out uh, recommended tidal volume levels because we can't measure it anyway. So if you can make the chest rise, that's good enough. 30 to 2. Two-minute segments, switch compressors every two minutes. So to be successful at this very, very important change is to deliver a 30 to 2 ratio, fast compressions with complete recoil, taking turns with those compressors. Give the ventilation slow, one second each, and not too many of them. Minimize interruptions in compressions. Extremely important because cardiac output is terrible. And quit hyperventilating. Again, team leader roles in ALS, BLS and ALS codes are to watch the guy that's distracted giving ventilations. This person is maybe completing his grocery list in his head or whatever he's doing or being asked a question, and that's all it takes sometimes is to deliver the ventilation at way too fast. And after Heidi found the average is about 37 for, per minute, which is very detrimental on the heart. So you have a, a group, maybe as few as two, maybe as few as one rescuer who's just arrived at the side of somebody uh, with a sudden ev uh, arrest event. If CPR is in progress, that's wonderful. It prepares the heart for the first defibrillation. An outcome has been proven to be much improved with that sequence in mind. The AED is, uh, arrives and is turned on, attached to the patient. Um, you have to pause compressions here to analyze. Yeah, that's still a big deal. Um, this is a real big problem we see in the future for AED manufacturers is trying to teach these machines to analyze through compressions. We'd love it if it could do that, and that's a goal for the future. But for right now, CPR is in progress. AED pads get applied. As soon as everything's ready, you clear everybody back to analyze. No ventilations, no compressions. And in some machines, it takes as long as 37 seconds, which is way too long. If the machine then says that's a shockable rhythm, you have to clear to shock. Now, here's the change. One shock only. As soon as that shock is delivered, the compressors step in and start compressions. Now, this is also the dance that I was talking about earlier. One shock sequencing, I'll talk a lot more about that in a second, 
And then as soon as that shock is delivered, hands come in and compressions are started at 30 to 2 again. 23, per, 23 compressions in 30 seconds. Everything is done for two minutes, and then you can reanalyze the AED, re-shock if necessary. Again, we are at a one-shock sequence with two minutes of CPR in between, and the reason, the tipping point here, is that 90% of ventricular fibrillation and pulseless ventricular tachycardia is converted on the first shock with these new biphasic defibrillators. They are very efficient. In fact, with monophasic defibrillators, I think the best guess or educated guess was somewhere around 70 to 80% conversion on the first shock. You got to understand uh, that most of the rhythms that are then presenting after the defibrillation are not organized and do not generate a pulse. Some do. Most of these are actually asystole or pulseless electrical activity. And it is imperative that we start very good compressions very quickly to kick up cardiac output and try to help the heart organize itself for the next rhythm. So as soon as the shock is delivered, 30 compressions in 23 seconds. Stop pausing those compressions as much as possible. With AEDs, this is a particular problem, as I said before. Um, we are challenging the AED manufacturers to try to limit the amount of time for analysis, and some of the newer ones have to start to teach it to read it through compressions, if it could. Uh, but for right now, if ALS is intercepting um, with BLS codes, um, we recommend that you put a manual uh, monitor defibrillator pacer on that patient as soon as possible so that you can manually read the rhythms in a faster time frame than the AEDs can analyze. The infant sequence, again, is 30 to 2, just like the adult. The sequence is, is the same. Are you okay? Activate the emergency response system. Let's stop and talk just a little bit about this as well. Uh, the phrase of phone first versus phone fast was coined a long time ago. In fact, some of that study was done in Iowa. If a lone healthcare worker is with an adult, you would phone first because we all know that's almost always cardiac related. If you're with a child, however, we know that most pediatric uh, cardiac arrest is respiratory or shock in nature and that they dwindled down into, into cardiac arrest. So if it is a child in general, they want you to do two minutes of CPR before you call EMS if you're by yourself. Open the airway, look and listen and feel for normal breathing for no more than 10 seconds. If it's not available, give two ventilations, one second each. Check the pulse for no greater than 10 seconds. Now, where do you check the pulse? Well, you can check the pulse anywhere you want to. It's taught as the brachial in the infant or carotid or femoral in a child. A 30 to 2 ratio, 30 compressions in 23 seconds. No change there whatsoever. No change, though. 
a continuation of the same recommendation, one finger breadth below the nipple line for an infant, but they don't want you to dink around trying to figure this out by doing all kinds of calisthenics with your fingers. They just want you to visually mark that yourself and just get the CPR done. Cues to good compressions, hard, fast, complete recoil is extremely important and that is why you need to switch compressors often. With the new CPR educational materials will be stopwatches and I know you're envisioning some Nazi standing over a, um, a healthcare worker trying to do compressions fast enough but this is important to cardiac output. We want to make sure that people who are learning or relearning CPR know that they need to go fast. Cues to using the AED appropriately, one shock at a time, and the CPR that commences right after the shock begins with compressions. It's as if shock delivered and hands are already in position starting the 30 compressions in 23 seconds. Again, this is a major change for manufacturers of AEDs. They have to reprogram hundreds of thousands if not millions of AEDs now and all the trainers that go with it. And so it'll take a while for them to reprogram these devices. There are some companies that already have information to their customers on how they are going to get this done. Uh, if you own an AED, I highly recommend you go to their website. They may have a message there for you already or talk to your sales representative. As a recommendation from dispatchers even when 911 is called for complaint of chest pain. If medical director approves um, and there's no contraindications to it in a phone conversation, then dispatch should go ahead and advise the patient to take an aspirin. A few pediatric science changes over and above what we've already The primary ABCD, as we've just talked about, is absolutely central to good outcome here. Even when the cavalry arrives on the scene to save the life of the patient, it still depends upon those first few minutes by bystanders with AEDs and our first response systems out there with AEDs. The secondary ABCD is continuing good compressions uh, and good decision making based on what we know makes a difference in outcome. And remember code team leaders and code members, pause CPR only for defibrillation and rhythm pulse checks. And if you remember this, the code will go a much better. Again, you must have compressor teams assign three or four people that are going to take turns being your compressors. And then once the initial code begins, all CPR starts with the compressions, not the ventilations. Quit hyperventilating. This is the team event. Team leader must be in charge of this and team members must be aware of this. It is not, it, usually people take offense or become defensive in a code when you say, hey, you're ventilating too fast, but it is human nature to do this. So it's just a reminder, code team, keep track of each other. We sometimes get distracted while giving More ACLS changes. Now that we've gotten into 
or away from the shock. We're doing compressions and you're making a decision as to whether to upgrade the airway. This is not carved in stone anymore. If you are getting chest rise with bag and mask and uh, resources may not be available or whatever the case may be, the recommendations are that you think twice about whether you want to upgrade the airway. And they'd like you to upgrade it without pausing compressions. Knowing what we know about cardiac output and chest compressions, it is critical that we weigh in our minds as team leaders in a code whether that advanced airway needs to go in. Most of all the cardiac arrest drugs that we give, and I think there's eight or nine total that are just one of those half-twos in ACLS, all of these have been de-emphasized. Even epinephrine, it came real close to coming out of the algorithm, was openly discussed in one of the science committees that maybe it was time to take epinephrine out of the algorithms because it does not prove good end outcome results. Makes no difference. So, with that in mind, looking at those two statements on this slide, you should think twice about your code now. Uh, again, this is going to be hard for us because we are so used to this ingrained thought of we must get these skills done and IV established in an ET tube in so that we can give these all-important drugs. Since the classification system of 2000, we know that almost all these drugs are either indeterminate for research to prove that they're good or class 2Bs, showing no benefit. And now that we know that compressions are of benefit, again, another weight to consider. If you're going to have a skill for the adult or pediatric patient, you may give these drugs IV or IO. Uh, adult IO devices, there's several on the market now. They're all pretty good. And the route and rate of uptake of the drugs is perfectly acceptable. They really want you to think twice about giving these drugs down the endotracheal tube. I'll talk more about this in a second, but uh, it has always been suspect and kind of a default to give those five drugs down the ET tube at a guess of two times the usual IV dose. But now they know that some of these drugs have an unusual effect if given down the endotracheal tube. So, as the team leader of your cardiac arrest code and as a team member, we know that compressions are important. We know we're not supposed to pause the compressions, if at all possible. So weigh whether that advanced airway in a patient that you're having no trouble ventilating with bag and mask or the patient who is in V-fib and uh, would warrant some good compressions and defibrillation, whether you need to stop that activity just to give drugs that may not work and probably don't, and an advanced airway that doesn't seem to make much difference in end outcome either. But I also must remind you, that a lot of what we do, as you know, is based upon consensus. We are so trying to get into evidence-based practice. But uh, we leave a lot of gray area behind sometimes as we look towards that goal. There is not a lot of proof. Um, 
And in some ways, it's very difficult to study the art of resuscitation because our patients cannot provide an informed consent in this country. That is why it was important for the American Heart Association to work with the International Liaison Group, the ILCOR group, to put a lot of this science on paper. A lot of what we do is consensus, or what we agree upon is a good idea for the patient. That's why in 2000 they published the guidelines um, recommendation levels, 1, 2A, 2B, and 3, to go along with their algorithm so that people would understand uh, that 2A seems to be good, we can't prove it, causes no harm. 2B was we can't prove anything that it works, but it doesn't harm the patient. And a class 3 point that stated that uh, we can prove that that is harmful to the patient. Class 1, there's very few class 1 recommendations out there, very few, that say absolutely we can prove that this works. So when you consider all of the worksheets that were put together for this, you also have to think about the tipping points. And I think uh, Mary Fran Hazinski, who is the science editor for the Heart Association, said this very well in the first uh, pages of the guidelines change, that there were times when there were tipping points, that there may have been consensus, there was almost proof, but sometimes there was a factor from science that said we have to do it this way. And I'll talk about some of those tipping points, especially when it comes to compression ventilation ratios. And again, um, no matter the criticism out there for the, the science that may come from the new science of resuscitation, this is the most comprehensive review of the literature that has ever been published. And I, as a witness to this in those committee rooms, got to see these scientists defend their positions with passion um, in, a, in a science they truly believe in, and that is to make it better, make it better for resuscitation. We talked about this, uh, interrupting chest compressions lowers coronary perfusion and decreases rates of survival. It's uh, pretty well proven. We're notorious for interrupting chest compressions and hyperventilating sudden cardiac arrest patients. And in the first few minutes of, of sudden cardiac arrest, or V-fib sudden cardiac arrest, we know that ventilation is not as important as chest compressions. Now, you might say, well, then why do we teach ventilations at all? Well, eventually, ventilations do become important. And as said before, behaviorally and um, endurance-wise, eventually, uh, before the patient gets intubated, you need to pause just to rest from the... Now, we do know that if the heart has not been prepared for the first shock, it will not respond appropriately. So... Um, there was a fairly large study done, and uh, the folks that did CPR prior to the first shock had a lot better results. This is very difficult to teach, and it depends upon your EMS system or response system if you're in-house as to how this would work for you. So four or five minutes seemed to be the catch time for this. So how do we teach time timing of cardiac arrest events? We all know that's terrible. So 911 is instituted, and if when EMS arrives, if no CPR is going on, then they shall provide CPR for about two minutes while the AED is set up, and that should prepare the heart for the first shock. 
if CPR is going on when they arrive by a, a good bystander, then they can go ahead and deliver the shock as soon as they're re- ready to. So we have talked a lot today about all the science changes, and they differ from previous science changes in many ways. First of all, they are a very extensive and the most extensive review of CPR yet published. And they were developed really under a very structured process. And the word transparent was uh, key. In fact, the ECC committee has gone out and has taught other healthcare organizations how to do a transparent process for disclosure and management of conflicts of interest in a science development uh, since they developed their process. It was, it was very impressive. Simplification was the other huge deal here. We need to have people who remember how to do these skills and do the best for the patient, and so simplification is always a good idea. Um, If you have any questions, again, I I highly encourage you to download this information from the AmericanHeart.org website. Uh, It's just a website. It is just full of information. Go to the Professional and Scientific Emergency Cardiovascular Care sections to be able to download the guidelines. You can read them online or you can just download them and uh, refer to them anytime you want to. All neonatal, pediatric, and adult basic and advanced life support changes are listed there along with ethical considerations, DNAR, and um, other thoughts uh, on the science changes. Thank you for your time and see you later. The cues to good ventilation. Look for normal breathing. Uh, lay rescuers are not attuned to the subtle differences here. So when we look for normal breathing, that means that um, anything abnormal we would assist with. We have better, keen, a keener set of observations here, but lay rescuers will not be taught this ventilation-only CPR. One second for each breath, whether you're bagging or using a pocket mask. And this was, uh, the tipping point here was a study where they looked at uh, fatigue by healthcare or any rescuer trying to give ventilations. Take one regular breath in between and then ventilate again, enough just to create. Okay. Again. If you think this is a sudden witnessed collapse, it must be a phone-first protocol. If it's an asphyxial arrest, you should do CPR first. And this sequencing or um, arrest cause editing can only be done by health. Now, breathing too quickly insufflates that esophagus and leads to aspiration of gastric contents, um, and it really doesn't do much for the ventilation at all. Once the advanced airway is in place, be conscious of your rates. You are asynchronous now if you're doing the full code. Compressions go on 100 per minute, no pauses, and then ventilations are only at 8 to 10 per minute. Self. 
Lay rescuers, well, healthcare workers, to tell you the truth, are not so good at checking a pulse under this pressure, but lay rescuers are even worse. So, again, they will be taught that anybody not breathing and unconscious is essentially in cardiac arrest, so they should start CPR. We should be taught to check the pulse for no greater than 10 seconds, and this is a lot harder than it sounds. We have a lot of shock and disbelief when we are encountering somebody in cardiac arrest and try to get second and third opinions as to whether there's a pulse palpable in the neck or even in the groin if we're checking the femoral. You need to keep in mind the same things. Anybody who is unconscious and not breathing is probably in cardiac arrest, probably has that look of somebody in cardiac arrest, and which is very hard to teach. But again, rely upon that as well as that pulse check to tell. So we only interrupt this compression dance when you need to do a pulse rhythm check. And I say that as kind of one word. Hopefully once the monitor arrives, you're doing a rhythm pulse check. You interrupt compressions only to deliver a shock or if analyzing a rhythm with an AED, which does take a long time. Other activities, um, including moving a patient or intubating the patient, which has been de-emphasized, um, is really, really taught with some concern. Uh, they really recommend that EMS communities uh, be given some protocols where they may try to do most of the code, if not all of the code, right on the premises without moving the patient. There's been some great changes here. Some of it unchanged, but um, the best change occurred with unconscious choking procedures. So if a, uh, somebody is has a mild obstruction, is coughing, but maintaining color and consciousness without difficulty, leave them alone. But if they're having difficulty and are greater than one year of age, you can use abdominal thrusts in rapid sequence for all rescuers. If you can't get your hands around the abdomen, then chest thrusts work just fine in the same place that you would do compressions. Now, here's where the huge change occurs, and I think this is excellent. There's too many steps in unconscious choking anyway for us to remember every two years, so this is excellent. If the adult victim with a foreign body airway obstruction becomes unresponsive, activate EMS, of course, but begin CPR. It makes sense. Now, every time you come up from 30 compressions to give the two ventilations, look inside the mouth. If there's something there, pluck it out. Otherwise, no blind finger sweeps here. So unconscious choking becomes CPR with one extra step, which I think is simplification at its best. As a matter of fact, we stole this procedure from the Europeans who've been doing it this way. In ACLS then, even with a manual defibrillator, it will be a one-shock protocol. Now, why one-shock only? Again, 90% of the time with a biphasic defibrillator, you get them out of VF or pulseless VT. The compressions are so much more important than any repeat shocks that won't make any difference in the sequence. So, in weighing the evidence here, the tipping point was the compressions gave more benefit to the patient than a second or a third shock. 
especially since many of the time they're in asystole or PEA. Deliver one shock and then start CPR with compressions first. Do not recheck the rhythm or pulse before you start CPR. Now this, I think, behaviorally may become the most difficult thing we learn and teach to others in this sequence. This is where the waltz or the dance occurs. We have assessed, started CPR, we check rhythm, we're going to shock, we got compressions going, we shock and then the compressor quickly gets in there to give 30 compressions without checking a pulse or rhythm. And again, we talked about the fact that those compressions do no harm if the patient does have a rhythm. Now, when we talk about conversion of V-fib with the first shock, we do say it's successful if you get them out of V-fib. Even though it may be asystole or PEA, it is still a success because that was the purpose of the defibrillation. Again, the next several minutes of compressions are then very important to the heart. So again, follow energy selection for a successful defibrillation and then compress the chest to get cardiac output up. And 200 joules is a default energy uh, if you can't remember the biphasic, biphasic energy level from the manufacturer. Three. And again, that concern is not warranted. About five sec cycles of 30 to 2 is about two minutes in this sequence. So shock compressions, two minutes, and then stop for more, no more than 10 seconds. Um, older healthcare workers like myself were taught to defibrillate with paddles. And there's a lot of steps in that for in order to get the energy across that uh, critical mass of the myocardium without lighting the room up. But I've taught myself, and I think you can as well, is to start using the pads. They are so much safer. They deliver much better energy uniformly across. You can monitor the rhythm through them. It is just the thing to do. And in fact, uh, it costs extra now to get the paddles put on these defibrillators for code carts, so just get used to the self-adhesive pads. Pad size is listed here for children and for adults. And some considerations and something you should have been taught about 10 years ago that defibrillating asystole is just wrong. The other issue that came up a few years ago was a, a couple of uh, incidents where there was minor explosions, although an explosion on a patient is never minor when oxygen was blowing across the defibrillation field. That's why they tell the guy ventilating to step back away from the code. And that's still a good rule of thumb for safety. Child CPR. The first big debate that was at rather humorous is what is a child. Our pediatrician colleagues um, have always been telling us that we do not give enough credence to child for the range. Uh, in ALS circles, we've taught ACLS to those who take care of kids eight and above. We teach PALS to those who take care of kids less than eight years of age. 
Um, and so eight years of age has been the cutoff for many, many years because the eight-year-old's body mass is that which usually mimics the adult. They want us to start thinking about this, however, because of the cause of the arrest in many cases, that sudden cardiac death related to heart versus those that are a deterioration of another condition. So, the new guideline is a definition of a child is one year to puberty. Now, so how do we determine that they are in the midst of puberty without looking ridiculous in public? That's a whole weird visual that you probably have right now. If you think about it, since we are kneeling at the side of someone next to their head and chest, we figure the safest and most socially acceptable way to check for puberty is to look in the armpit. And I think that's fairly reasonable. Uh, your options here are limited, um, and most bystanders out in the general public are not real fond of us digging around people's pants. Same sequence of CPR for the child then, 30 to 2. Whether you use one or two hands here really depends upon the size of the child. In general, this is simplification. This is the other big theme with these changes is simplification. Use one hand. If you can't generate a pulse, use two. Now, the other thing that we have to remind people about because... Um, we use way too small of bags for kids sometimes, that a pediatric bag is generally 450 to 500 milliliters. An adult bag is 1 to 2,000. Um, just as long as you don't use a bag too small here, I see a lot of 250 cc bags out there, and it cannot raise the, the chest of a child. So simple bag mask ventilation uh, over one second, just enough to make... Now, there is one difference in the 30 to 2 compression ventilation ratio, and that is when you have a code team, whether that be pre-hospital or in-house, you have two or three healthcare workers. This is when our pediatrician colleagues tell us it would be nice if you gave more ventilations, and that is only to the child. So this is when 15 to 2 rears its head. It is the same sequencing completely, but you, you are allowing for more ventilations in the sequence if you do it at this uh, ratio. All CPR becomes asynchronous. The compressions and ventilations become asynchronous once an advanced airway is in place. And again, even in children, you need to change compressors often. Once the advanced airway is in, only 8 to 10 breaths per minute. That's a very slow ventilation rate, and it's something that the whole code team will have to be conscious of. Since we are healthcare workers, they would like us to understand and try to assess for the cause of the arrest. And really, that sounds difficult, but it's actually fairly straightforward. And it's the difference between phone first versus phone fast in the pediatric sector. The sudden cardiac death that occurs uh, in adults is almost always heart-related. But um, children collapse for different reasons. If you see an older child collapse in front of you, you're going to phone first. That's pretty straightforward. But if you find a child in cardiac arrest, it's usually asphyxial. So they want you to do two minutes.
Again, I, I think this is very, very straightforward. This, the, the sequencing is exactly the same as for the adult. 30 to 2. Phone first if it's a sudden arrest event, especially in older children. Phone fast, meaning two minutes of CPR before you call for most arrests. And once a team arrives, the compression ventilation ratio should occur at 15 to 2 in children. Um, there's been a lot of controversy out there about advanced airways in children, especially early in the resuscitation. Um, if it's uh, a short transport, um, then they highly recommend that advanced airways not be placed in children because they are so easy to bag mask ventilate. They are recommending that, especially in the pediatric ICU patients, um, that a cuffed ET tube be used because, for one thing, you can get much better sizing with less air leaks. But on those on those cuffs, they really want our intensivists to uh, monitor the cuff pressures, so there's less complication. Endotracheal tube drug administration in children, it's more probable. <laughs> it is m- certainly possible that you might have to give a drug via the ET tube in a kid. Since it is a little harder to start an IV in them, although the IOs uh, placed in pediatric codes work pretty darn well. The lipid-soluble drugs may be instilled via that endotracheal tube as lean. Um, it is There is evidence that vasopressin can be given down the endotracheal tube in adults, although the outcome is usually bad. Uh, but in children, they really don't want you to give vasopressin at all, so eliminate that one from there. I want you to understand, though, that epinephrine dosing down an endotracheal tube usually gets beta effect, uh, and that's not really what you want, especially in a child. If you're going to give it down the ET tube, you should pause the compressions to give it. And again, this is not good drug uptake from that site. Other thoughts about drug administration for kids. Again, there's no evidence uh, for vasopressin in children, so that's not in their algorithms. Please don't give high-dose epi. Pediatric defibrillation, no real change. Whether you're using a monophasic or, or biphasic defibrillator, it is still 2 and 4 joules per kilo. Sequencing is entirely the same, 30 to 2 and less 2 person, then it's 15 to 2, one shock sequencing, just like the adult. If you're using an AED, they highly recommend that you use those new pediatric attenuated pads if the AED manufacturer has that for those 1 to 8 years of age. There's no evidence that AEDs should or should not be used in those less than 1 year of age, and it's entirely up to the health. Again, back to that pediatric terminology of defending whether this is um, a child or not. We talked about how to assess that and uh, just so it's uh, politically correct and all those other things. A child is one year to puberty. Now, in your particular hospital, they may want to make these ranges a little bit different, and that's entirely up to you. That's usually 12 to 14 years of age, um, but in general, um, that's the recommendation from our, our pediatric science committee. Again, a lay rescuer will be taught that a child is one to eight years of age and then adult sizes from puberty on. This has always been a debate and continues to be one, especially with use of AEDs.
And the other algorithms for kids, the bradycardia algorithm is unchanged, and the tachycardia algorithm has been simplified. It's always been pretty simple, but it's even simpler now. In post-resuscitation stabilization, um, there are a few things that we know that we need to have tight control over with the patient that has survived this disease. Um, and in this intensive care unit, uh, they're now giving huge considerations to very tight glucose control, thinking about acute coronary syndromes as a diagnostic, sending the patient to the cath lab, and going ahead and doing an ACS algorithm um, management style to maintain maximum perfusion and at all costs control temperature, meaning to avoid fever, which happens within 36 hours pretty frequently. Um, they feel that fever in this post-arrest patient almost doubles bad outcome, so avoid it at all costs if you're going to keep the patient in your own ICU. The class 2B recommendation, 2B meaning not a lot of evidence out there to show good benefit, but it does not harm the patient. But there's mounting evidence that post-arrest intentional hypothermia at a target of about 33 degrees centigrade is good for the patient's neurological. This uh, little sequence of slides was taken from the uh, synopsis article uh, from Currents magazine on the Heart Association website. And this um, um, was placed in there by Mary Fran as a way of trying to teach why it is important to start compressions immediately after that first shock. So this poor patient decides to have a sudden uh, cardiac death. The time is 22.37.22. And the machine uh, analyzes this and says, yeah, there's uh, this is core. While the machine is, uh, the pads are on and the AED um, shows, um, it decides it's a shockable rhythm and delivers the shock. In the third frame down in the strip, it shows the shock delivered. Um, this is 22 seconds after the pads were placed, which is pretty good. But that you can see that it's generally an asystolic rhythm once that shock occurs. Now, in the old three-shock sequence, we'd have reanalysis and then a decision by the AED as to whether to shock it again. Now, watch what happens during this very long pause. The heart is got some starting to organize itself. There's some what looks to be P waves, but there's absolutely no blood flow going on. There's no CPR going on. The heart is trying to organize itself. If it just had some oxygen, it might be able to kick up uh, a regular rhythm with perfusion. The AED this whole time is analyzing this as a non-shockable rhythm until the heart starts to fibrillate again. So 25 seconds after the first shock, now that the heart has gone back into V-fib, the AED has no trouble with this and says, oh, this is a shockable rhythm and allows a charge to be generated. That's a long time without any blood flow. Again, 90% of the time, biphasic defibrillators convert the patient out of V-fib, but it's usually into asystole or a pulseless electrical 
activity that needs to provide good blood flow while the heart gets itself in shape. So it is impressive how this must be done now. It is one shock in immediate, immediate compressions. Let's start with BLS. Truly, that's where most of the science uh, centered. And that's where most of the changes in the recommendations occurred because we really stink at basic life support, especially as healthcare professionals. So let's talk about these science changes. Let me first guide that the, uh, guide, the overall sequencing of CPR has not changed for the healthcare provider. So if that's a comfort for you, that's at least one thing. And I also work with a lot of people who are a little resistant to change. And every time, every five years, that the Heart Association comes out with its new science, there's the grumbling and mumbling and bitching and complaining that goes on related to, oh, now I have to do this, or now I have to relearn something, or I have to rewrite protocols. Whatever the case may be, remember that it is important that we do what's best for this terrible disease. And as I get older, it's even more important. And as you get older, it's important to you that we be the best that we can be at cardiac arrest management or even better to prevent cardiac arrest and do the best we can at post-resuscitation management. So change is actually good. There's your pep talk for the day as we start to go into these changes. Also understand that this has been a momentous task that over 300 worksheets were looked at in coming up with this new science based on a lot of good data um, that was compiled to put this together. Now let's talk about a basic life support code that primary A, B, C, and D and then talk about the defibrillation necessary. There's been some significant. Let's talk a little bit about pediatric CPR now. You call for help. Now we've talked about the new compression ventilation ratio of 30 to 2, the one shock sequencing with defibrillation, especially in the AEDs, the absolute mandate that we stop long pauses and compressions, in fact, minimize pausing compressions and pause only for defibrillation analysis, which includes rhythm pulse check, and that's about it. Let's talk a little bit about ventilation. And again, simplification is the theme here, but it also is trying to teach us to quit hyperventilation. Okay, we have shaken our victim, shouted for help, went and called for help in certain circumstances, most circumstances in the adult, opened the airway, gave two slow ventilations, one second each, checked for a pulse for 10 seconds, start our compressions at 30 to 2, two-minute segments, switching compressors every two minutes. Hard, fast compressions with complete recoil. As soon as the AED arrived, we made sure that the patient's heart was prepared with good CPR for two minutes, defibrillated once, and start compressions immediately. Okay, we've gotten through the primary ABCD, um, the 30 to 2 ratio, the one shock sequencing, and the dance of, of compressions around uh, defibrillation.
Now, we've done basic life support. We've actually done the primary ABCD, as it's taught in ACLS changes. And hopefully you're starting to get a feel for the importance of the compressions in cardiac arrest management. So almost all of the ACLS changes are focused on basic life support and good basic life support during the code, which includes defibrillation. This is a great little linear algorithm that Mary Fran put together for these um, guidelines uh, publications. And I, I don't know, I, I think I read this a lot better than some sort of a, a decision tree. But if you look at it, at the beginning of the cardiac arrest, you start CPR at 30 to 2 in the guidelines we've already talked about, and some sort of a defibrillator arrives on the scene and there's a rhythm check, whether that's analysis through AED or not. As soon as that 10-second rhythm check occurs in the manual defibrillator, you're making a decision to defibrillate, and it takes a while to get your act together to get that done, so would you please start compressions again? Then a shock occurs, and that's a perfectly legitimate time to pause compressions, as we talked about before. CPR begins again immediately, and again, we've already started the code, so now everything begins with compressions. Two minutes of that occurs before you stop and check rhythm and pulse. At that same time, you switch compressors. Now, at some point in time in there, hopefully, even with movement from CPR, you can get an IV or IO in, and you can get the first vasopressor dosage ready to go. Now, that can be epinephrine or vasopressin. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But the team is ready for the next step ahead of time. Just in case, when they do check the rhythm, VFib continues, the code continues, and they need to get, you feel like you need to give the vasopressor. Give it right before you give compressions. And give it IV or IO if at all possible. Then you can shock. CPR begins with compressions for two minutes, preparing the antiarrhythmic. If you feel that maybe VFib is going to continue and you want to be prepared for it, the good team will have that antiarrhythmic ready to go. Make sure that rhythm is still present before you give it. Start compressions and give the med, and then shock again. Notice that there's not a lot of emphasis in here about an advanced airway. So if you're not having any difficulty with bag and mass ventilation, continue with it. And pause compressions only for rhythm pulse checks for no more than 10 seconds and for defibrillation, of course. The other type of linear thought pattern or algorithm that Mary Fran developed is this other pulseless arrest that has to do with the non-shockable rhythms, PEA and asystole. Again, it's the same type of sequence, but of course you're not defibrillating. And it's the code team being prepared for the next step, confirming the next step with a rhythm pulse check before you do it, like vasopressors. All in place, we'll talk about it in a minute, but I do want to talk a little bit about some of the devices that are out there. Our facility has been using uh, a circnoid hemorrhage, and it's called the Arctic Sun System. And it works pretty well. It has all the necessary probes uh, for uh, taking the temperature down and then back up again slowly. Our protocol is to intubate, ventilate, paralyze the patient, circulate the cool water through the pads, and the goal of 33 degrees in two hours certainly is acceptable for the protocol. This is kind of a uh, big device and kind of costly. 
but in essence, um, it is uh, a computer with the probes, and the pads go on the patient um, on over as a vest, and then around their tummy and uh, around their upper thighs, and uh, works pretty well in taking the patient down in a controlled setting and warms them up again in a controlled setting. This is just a picture of uh, some of these pads that are on the patient. Let me add that there was concern amongst, amongst many of the folks out there. If we give one shock, do not check pulse or rhythm and start compressions right away, will we damage the heart if it is in a perfusing rhythm? And actually they did study that and said it had absolutely no detriment to the heart itself. If by chance with the first shock you got a perfusing rhythm, um, even if you start compressions, it will not uh, change that at all. If we have respiratory arrest, um, especially in children, only healthcare workers will be taught the ventilation only resuscitation and the guidelines are pretty strong here about our rates with which we ventilate. Since we're not doing compressions in respiratory arrest, it behooves the patient to put them on a ventilator as soon as possible because that thing doesn't have behavioral problems like we do with hyperventilation. One breath every three to five seconds in a child at a rate of 12 to 20 and quit hyperventilating. This is a copy of the basic life support adult algorithm and child algorithm um, for basic, just again, basic life support only. And uh, it's also taken from the guidelines 2005. Now also I stole this from Currents and from the guidelines. It's just a little um, table that shows the differences in CPR that um, are a little different there. Adult bradycardia algorithm is here and should be um, thought about in trying to prevent the cardiac arrest. That's the best way to deal with cardiac arrest is to prevent it. There's really no changes in the bradycardia algorithm. There is a redefinition of our dose of atropine, however, and our dose of dopamine. If the patient is uh, symptomatic, i.e. poor perfusion with their low heart rate, then you may give 0.5 milligrams of atropine while awaiting the pacemaker. There used to be some confusion there. They felt that pacing was better. And, and in, in many cases it is. And you should be prepared for transcutaneous pacing as a bridge to a wired pacer. But 0.5 of atropine, it used to be a range of 0.5 to 1 milligram. and is now just 0.5. Total dose of 3 milligrams, please. The other change here is the dose of dopamine. PDR says you can give dopamine at 2 to 20 micrograms per kilogram per minute and the alpha, beta, and dopaminergic effects are certainly dose-related. What the science committee thought you should think about here is that epinephrine at 2 to 10 and dopamine at 2 to 10 gives the effect necessary and does not stress the heart as much 
as giving higher doses of dopamine. And that's what this algorithm looks like. There's a lot on it, but still much better than it used to be. Much more user-friendly, so to speak. Really no other changes in the recommendations on here, just simplified in one page. The algorithm uh, is freely downloadable from that AmericanHeart.org website uh, and is listed here. And again, for simplicity purposes, and absolutely stolen from the PALS Science Committee, was a one-page pulseless arrest algorithm with V-Fib, pulseless VTAC on the left, a systole PEA together on the right. There's really not a lot of change here except for the CPR sequencing and one shock sequencing we've already talked about. You may give epi one milligram. You may give vasopressor 40 units. You can replace one dose of epinephrine with vasopressin in the first three. In a systole or PEA, you can give a uh, atropine up to three milligrams. Procainamide has been removed from the antiarrhythmics list. Otherwise, there's no change. In the stroke algorithm, really no change here as well. The only comments made from the um, giving TPA in stroke should be done by a uh, hospital that is dedicated to that and has a protocol in place that's managed each time in the same way. In regards to acute coronary syndromes, which is the algorithm in front of you, really no, not a lot of change here. Um, risk stratification has been increased uh, by 12-lead interpretation to the pre-hospital setting. They would really like paramedics to be able to do that. Um, and they add, this is the pediatric pulseless arrest algorithm. Again, looks similar to the adult one. And this is for children up to puberty. If they're in VF, pulseless VTAC, one shock, two joules. CPR starting with compressions for two minutes. Same thoughts about recoil and speed. Stop, check rhythm and pulse. And if necessary, go to four joules per kilo for your second shock. Think about a vasopressor. No use of vasopressin here, please. And then uh, the antiarrhythmics are the same. For non-VF pulseless VT, it is the use of epinephrine. Um, and in all circumstances, uh, there is no recommendation for the use of a pacemaker in asystole at any time, whether it be a child or adult. For bradycardia, really no change. And the tachycardia, really no change from previous iterations. Now, when we talk about the theme of adult tachycardia, the old algorithm, I think, was 15 to 22 pages in length, depending upon how you read that. But for simplification, this has become a one-page algorithm, just as the PALS one has been for many, many years. If the patient is unstable, synchronize cardiovert. If the patient is stable then you should classify them as either narrow or wide. That's an old thought process. And then also as regular or irregular. Now, if you think about it in a stable patient with a narrow complex or wide complex tachycardia that's irregular, you have to think about atrial fibrillation. And, of course, we know that that's treated a little bit differently.
So, very, very simple, simple one-page algorithm that pretty much says if they're unstable cardiovert, if they're stable, think of it, are they appearing as a narrow complex or wide complex? Is it regular or irregular? Trying to define whether atrial fib, flutter, or other um, high-risk clot-producing rhythms are, are present. So we, uh, they're recommending that EMS medical directors consider this new protocol of two minutes of CPR prior to the first shock uh, if the response time was four to five minutes. Now, that's actually fairly short response time, especially in the rural environment that we work in in Iowa. Next. What energy should we use? Well, if you're still using monophasic machines... 360 joules is recommended at all times for all shocks, first and all after that. Now, um, this is not set in stone either. Uh, the science committees just knew that this was probably the best energy and did not harm the patient. The biphasic machines that are truncated exponential for waveform that's their recommendation for energy. The rectilinear biphasics are 120, etc., etc. Now, the manufacturer of the biphasic machine that whoever you work for has should tell you what energy they want you to use. You should know what that is. The dialed-in energy should be known to you as the owner of that device. But if it is not known, and that happens a lot, use 200 joules as your default energy. Let me repeat that. Bottom line is biphasic. If you don't know the energy, use 200. Monophasic, use 360. And probably monophasic machines won't be made anymore in the next few years, so it's something to start looking for. When you're going to replace your uh, code cart machines, uh, start looking at the buy. Now, in the ACLS manual and PALS manuals, the code team uh, leading and code team membership is going to be a lot about logistics and pre-planning and the, the waltz that needs to occur around the compressions. It's being prepared ahead of time. Uh, it's none of this, it's time for epi, pull it up and give it. It's, we're in a code, let's pull up the epi, and for the next, when the next rhythm pulse check occurs over the next 10 seconds, if, if that confirms the need, we'll go ahead and give it right as we give compressions again. Maybe advanced airway maneuvers after one or two shocks, and that doesn't always mean an endotracheal tube. This may mean mid-level uh, airways. Uh, the ACLS and PALS textbooks talk about LMA because that was, at the time, the only one researched. But other mid-level airways are out on the market that can be used. And the quote from the book is here on the slide. And, again, it's just reiteration that it is important that chest compressions be done in a continuous threat. So more thoughts on airway, because this is a kind of a paradigm shift for us. You need to really weigh the need here for compressions against the need for an advanced airway. If you're struggling to get the chest to rise uh, with bag and mask, then, of course, that should be thought about. 
but um, you should wait several minutes, especially in a VF sequence, uh, at least until after the second shock to consider it. Once the advanced airway is in place, uh, remember that your compression ventilation ratio goes to asynchronous, 100 compressions per minute, no pauses. The drugs in the pulseless arrest I've already alluded to. Endotracheal tube dosing. Um, I've already stated that really, really de-emphasized. Lidocaine and epinephrine should be given via IV or IO route instead of that endotracheal tube. It's much more predictable drug delivery. And always anticipate the next drug that needs to be given. Have it ready to go, confirmed with the rhythm pulse check, check sequence and then circulated with the compressions that will occur as you give the drug. Uh, all the vasopressors, vasopressin or epinephrine, given once IV or IO that way. Giving epinephrine or vasopressin, the dosing and sequencing for epinephrine is the same. One dose of vasopressin may be substituted for the first or second dose of epinephrine in the adult. Antiarrhythmics in the pulseless arrest VFib algorithm. Consider after the vasopressor the use of amiodarone or lidocaine and note the statement below, clearly stated in the algorithm. There are some uh, considerations given to ICU codes and that is when you have continuous hemodynamic monitoring, your sequence may be modified because you're able to see good blood flow in many cases. So uninterrupted, the thread of uninterrupted CPR is paramount in all cardiac arrest management. Once the code begins, CPR is begun with compressions. Everything goes for two minutes. You do a rhythm check, shock, then compressions. Rhythm check, shock, compressions. Rhythm check with drug delivery. Some thoughts about interhospital transport of pediatric patients. Again, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Heart Association go hand in hand to write the PALS course. And this science committee wants to make another statement about the care that should be provided by those who are transporting patients from pediatric IC, uh, from ERs or pediatric ICUs to another. And these should be people who are supervised by specialists and have uh, the skills necessary to work in those specialty areas. In many cases, uh, we ask uh, folks to transport our very, very sick children who have only had PALS certification um, as a, a credentialing measure, and that's really not adequate. for. In regards to neonatal resuscitation, that is a subcommittee off the pediatric group, and they have worked hard to uh, also look at a lot of science out there on the resuscitation of, of babies. Uh, the one thing they did add to the NRP steps uh, is to add a little bit of a triage assessment to rule in or out those who... So the triage questions in the NRP is full term, fluid clear, baby breathing and crying, and does it have good muscle tone? If yes, then go ahead and provide routine care. Thirty-second reassessment intervals in those thirty seconds. Okay, 
we've talked about the primary ABCD, the secondary ABCD. We've given consideration to kids. The overall theme is 30 to 2, simplification, one shock sequencing, and all CPR begins with compressions once the initial CPR has begun. Don't stop CPR except for shock and rhythm pulse checks or other considerations. And this is the new algorithm. But in essence, those at the very top pink question uh, section is to ask four questions. Is this a term pregnancy, 37 weeks or more? Is the fluid, amniotic fluid clear? Is the child breathing and crying pretty well? And does it appear to have good muscle tone? If yes, you should go ahead and skip over to the routine care segment. If no to any of those questions, then you should do the initial steps of NRP, dry, warm, position, suction, tactile stimulation, etc. Now let's talk about this a little bit. Intentional hypothermia, again, uh, not a lot of hard evidence that this is going to make a difference, but there's some early evidence of benefit, and pathophysiologically it makes sense. If return of spontaneous circulation, ROSC, occurs, well, by the way, the brain's kind of been in hibernation during the code. It wakes up, and the patient becomes hyperdynamic for about an hour, and this creates an oxidate stress on the neurons. If the temperature is dropped in this premise, neuroprotective enzymes are enhanced, and according to Dr. Callaway in Pittsburgh doubles the chances of good neurologic outcome with just mild hypothermia. When he presented this to us just yesterday, um, he stated that there was generally three reasons why physicians say they were not at that time instituting intentional hypothermia post-arrest. And they're listed here. They said, oh, my patient didn't fit the profile. I don't have the resources to do that sophisticated treatment. Or we don't have the protocol. First of all, my patient doesn't fit the profile. As I said, all the studies were done with the patient in V-fib. That's about 30 to 40% of cardiac arrest in the adult population. But what if they were in asystole? Dr. Callaway stated that he uses it both in asystole and in some PEA cases um, he institutes uh, post-arrest hypothermia in other cases as well, not just in... I don't have the resources to do it. <laughs> I had to laugh at this because he's absolutely right. It, the studies were done with cooling blankets and ice. He said his first hypothermia was done with ice too, which was pretty messy. He uses two refrigerated bags of IV fluids and that's it. And then a cooling blanket to sustain it. That's pretty simplistic, and I think almost everybody can do that. In Europe, Australia, and has come to the United States in several different um, facilities to be studied. They came out with a statement on this in July of 2003, actually. Uh, but the only studies at the time were in V-fib. That really does not have bearing here, but they could only give a recommendation in V-fib because that's where the studies were. In order to decide whether you're going to do this, you have to ask a few questions, and I, I think we've made it too difficult. We're going to talk about the be- maybe the best method, how long we should do it, the rate of cooling and warming. We're not going to give a lot of talk today about the ethics or the cost, except for some of the devices, but these are things that your facility need to decide about before you. 
The studies that were done were pretty simple, using cooling blankets and ice packs, and they cooled the patient within a few hours of the post-arrest period to 33 degrees, and they chose patients who are in short V-fib algorithms that were pretty stable post-arrest. So that's where the original protocols have come up. The other thing they did was they made sure they were sedated and paralyzed because we could not have the patient shivering. It made them way too hyperdynamic. And in some cases, because of the method that they were using, stopped the hypothermia from progressing to where it needed to be. There was some evidence of good neurologic outcome, especially at six months. So one consideration here that may be instituted in wherever you come from, and that is if you have prolonged transport times once the arrest has been dealt with, the patient is in a post-arrest period, if you wanted to get their temperature dropped to 33 within an hour or two, could we do this in the EMS setting? It certainly depends upon your setting individually. It's nice if you can get them into a controlled environment, but yeah, there may be some implications for EMS here. Another device that um, looks a little pricey, the cool line catheters and the intercool system, uh, very similar in nature. Uh, I know that the cool line catheters has a, a, a balloon that, uh, the, of course, the triple lumen is inserted into a central uh, um as a central line, but the blood flow flies across the cool fluid in the balloon to cool the blood, and it, it, it works very, very well and can drop that temperature pretty quickly, although it's very expensive, as I understand it. The third and most easily accessible is cold IV fluids. Uh, the patient usually has a temperature on average of about 35.5 centigrade after an arrest. And to bring them down to 33 degrees is usually fairly easy to do as long as you don't allow a shiver. So in a lot of the studies that Dr. Calloway did in Pittsburgh, he talked about using two cold IV fluid bags at 30 milliliters per kilogram. He, he believes that two liters usually does it that the first liter drops their temperature about four degrees per hour on average, but then the patient begins to shiver. And this is where a little bit of a negotiation needs to occur about whether you paralyze them or not. If you paralyze them, of course, you're not going to allow them to shiver, and then the second liter will go in and bring them down to 33 degrees. Um, he uses this method routinely. It is inexpensive and does the job very to paralyze the patient it is of concern. Um, it does take away the assessment. Uh, he recommends that you don't paralyze this patient right away. Uh, sometimes uh, the patient has having um, um, some seizure activity, that which is uh, masked, of course, by the paralysis. So he feels like if you're going to need to uh, keep them from shivering by paralysis, then you need to use continuous EEG recording. Into a lot of detail, uh, about how to do this protocol, but this is also available at this site. So the third excuse of I don't have a protocol for it is available at emsresearch.org if you would like to look it up and follow it for your institution. 
You can use the more sophisticated devices, uh, but in essence, two refrigerated IV bags usually do it.